Well, it's a good day to be gathered with God's people, isn't it? Our sermon this morning comes from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. And while you are finding your way there in that scripture, I, I, I haven't mentioned that I would do this, but uh, I would like to recognize the Lee family who are here uh, uh, worshiping uh, with us this morning. Would you all mind, would you stand just for a moment for us? Um, the, the Lee family are, are some of our missionaries in East Asia working amongst an unreached people group. And they are here staying in our house of blessing, and uh, they've done us the great service of uh, being able to worship with them this morning, and we're excited for you here. We're going to pray for you in a moment, and I just want you all to know who we're praying for. You all may be seated. It's uh, great to have you here this morning. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Hear now the word of God. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to consider your word this morning, that we can cast our gaze upon it. Specifically, that in our study of Genesis, that we can explore your plan for marriage. And I trust that what we shall see this morning, the truths that you lay out before us, are incredibly relevant for so many in our lives, whether those of us are enjoying marriage right now, or have marriage in the future, or even considering, perhaps, for our widows and widowers, marriage in the past. We thank you for your word. And I ask that you would move mightily through it. That your Holy Spirit would come upon us and give us a great heart to delight in it and apply these truths to our marriage. I pray, Father, that your people would adopt your plan and vision for this great, incredible institution in order that we may for faithfully be a light to this dark world, this increasingly dark world. And so please help us. Let us find great joy in what you show us this morning. And we do pray for our brothers and sisters, the Lee family, who can be here with us this morning. We thank you for their faithful service in a long, far away land. We thank you, Father, that they know Jesus Christ and they desire for others to know him. And we are once again reminded that you are not an American God or a Jewish God, but you are the one true God worthy of worship from people of every tongue and language and nation and tribe. And so we ask that your hand will rest upon their gospel work. We ask that you would give them fruit, Father. That because of their testimony, whether by word or deed, lives will be changed, knees will be bowed to King Jesus for your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Robertson McKilkin 
was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary in South Carolina. He's also the husband to his beloved wife, Muriel. Muriel was a painter and a speaker. She herself hosted a radio program, an accomplished speaker of her own right, and an incredible cook. Unfortunately, Muriel was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. She deteriorated rather quickly. It was increasingly difficult to keep Muriel at home while Robertson would go off to his seminary job. And as things began to get worse in her life, many of his friends counseled him that she needs round-the-clock care, that she would be best served by putting her into a home. And so Robertson prayed about it. And to the surprise of many people, this man who had many, many years in fruitful ministry, who had finally achieved a position of great prominence, retired. So he could go home and care for his bride. He said he struggled with the decision, but then he would explain, when the time came, the decision was firm. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and the faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. This was no grim duty to which I was stoically resigned, however. It was only fair. She had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. She is a delight to me. I don't have to care for her. I get to. Last week, as we considered Genesis chapter 2, we saw God's bountiful provision. We saw that God had given life to man and then created a world in which he should, should find great delight in and then given him work in that world and, and gave him his commands in order that that man may have a fruitful, abundant, and joyful life. And today as we finish up Genesis chapter 2, we look at the last gift that God has to give to man before he sins in this garden of Eden, the gift of marriage. Today we find that uh, the understanding of marriage, especially in our culture, is rather confusing. There seems to be increasingly a greater misunderstanding of what marriage was designed to be. In fact, I recently came across a survey of children asked about their understanding of marriage. One child says no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. When asked to give the right age to get married, six-year-old Freddie said, no age is good to get married at. you got to be a fool to get married. Another said, you got to find someone who likes the same stuff. Like if you like sports, she should like sports, and she should keep the chips and dip coming. <laughs> Anita, who was asked whether it's better to be married or single, answered, it is better for girls... It's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. <laughs> Ten-year-old Ricky said, after he was asked how to make marriage work, explained, you ought to tell your wife she looks pretty, even if she looks like a truck. <laughs> I also came across a pastor who visited a fourth-grade Sunday school class to ask them about marriage. He said, what does God have to say about marriage? Immediately, one boy replied, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. <laughs> I'm afraid the misunderstanding of marriage is not confined to children, however. It seems like adults don't understand it very well either. 
Our culture and the land that we live in teaches us to act like perpetual adolescence. That is, we are to evaluate all things and in how they meet our needs. And if it does not meet our needs, we just simply toss it aside and move on to something else. And we take that same consumer mentality into our family. We take it even into the church. And we certainly take it into our marriages. What am I getting out of this? We are trained to ask. Marriage has become a a way to bless oneself. There's a casual understanding of marriage in our day. a, A take it or leave it. In fact, over the last three decades, marriage rates have dropped in America by one-third. Divorce rates have increased threefold. One-third of children today do not live with their fathers. Unmarried households in the last 30 years have increased sevenfold. And birth to unwed mothers has quintupled. Now 35% of all Americans are born to an unwed mother. I recently saw a poll In the USA Today, that said one out of five people do not think adultery is a sin. That's simply astonishing to me. One out of five people do not think, even in God's eyes, that it's a sin for a married person to have sexual intimacy with another person. There seems to be a growing, massive chasm between the biblical understanding of marriage and a cultural understanding of marriage. So I ask you this morning, why are you married? Or why do you hope to be? What's the point? Why has God given you this marriage? What does he intend for it to produce? He lays out before us beautifully, I think, his vision, his commands, my hope this morning, my prayer over this week, that his vision will be seen by you as something glorious, something wonderful and deep and secure. And I know many come here today with strong marriages. I trust there are also weak ones, though I don't have any personal insight. I trust there are some here that come today when there is no joy in the marriage, no life, no majesty. My hope is that God would bring new life into your marriage today, that his word would be powerful and mighty, and that you would see the vision that he has, and it would cast aside the fog of the lies and the culture in which we live, that you may gaze your eyes upon the brilliant institution of marriage. And that the Lord Jesus would help you to have what God wants you to have. And so what we will do today is we'll simply look, following this text, is first of all look at the need for marriage, and then secondly, the nature of marriage. And before we do, I do have a a comment or two for those of you who are single. I do want you to recognize that though we'll talk about marriage this morning, some of the Bible's greatest heroes were single. I think of the Apostle Paul, or John the Baptist, or Jesus Christ himself was not married. All these individuals were single, and yet I want you to know that their lives were never lived in isolation. That you and I are not meant to live in isolation for other people that God has built into us a desire for meaningful relationships and companionships. And so, even for those who are single, you ought to seek out those relationships that God can meet some of the needs that he has built into you. And so let's consider, first of all, the need for marriage. We pick up the story here in verse 18. And we see here that we need companionship. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. It's interesting here to read this, somewhat startling, I think, because in our study of Genesis, we've seen over and over again that everything is good. And God would make something and declare it good, and that's good, and that's good. And finally, he would create humanity and say, well, that's very good. And finally, we get to chapter 2 and verse 18, and God says, hey, wait a second. It's not good. Something's not good in the garden. 
Now, I don't want you to understand that what God is saying is that there's something bad there. There's nothing bad at all. What he is saying is that there's a good there that is absent. It could be better is what the Lord is, is saying. Something, some good is not present. That good, evidently, according to verse 18, is companionship. For God says it is not good that man should be alone. We are incomplete without others in our lives. We are made for relationships. In fact, we studied a number of weeks ago in Genesis chapter 1 when the Bible told us that we are made in God's image. I believe at least part of God's image in us is that we are made to love one another and to be involved and live within community. For God himself in his very nature is communal. He is plural. He is the Trinity. And he has eternally had love within himself. And then he made you and I in his image. And I trust in order that we too may share that love with one another. It is not good, God says, that we should be alone. We need companionship. I think many marriages are in trouble because they don't recognize this need. The married couple each go their own way with with little pursuit or investment in developing that companionship. Days are spent apart and nights are spent with little conversation. And many husbands and wives, I believe, are lonely. It's not what God intended. It's not good. God has given a marriage to overcome this need for companionship. This is his solution. It's not a set of golf clubs. It's not a backpack in which you can go climb mountains. It's not a fishing pole or television. It's not even a friend. It is a wife. It is a husband that you may find this warm and robust relationship. And so we see, first of all, it's not good that man should be alone. We need companionship. But there's a second need, I think, that God has built in for marriage. You see, we need help. Notice for the end of verse 18. God says, I will make a helper fit for him. He needs help. And this seems to me entirely self-evident. I lived for four years as an adult single man, and I needed help. Right? You could have looked at me and you would have said, well, that guy needs someone to help him. We are not meant to try this alone. And God recognizes that this man needs help and not just any kind of help. You notice, according to verse 18, he needs a help, helper fit for him or suitable for him. And so what does God do? Recognizing that man needs a helper fit for him, does he then therefore cause him to fall into deep sleep and form a woman and bring her to him? Well, that's not what he does at all. Notice verse 19. After declaring that man needs a help, a helper fit for him, we read, So, or therefore, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every birds of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And so God declares, you need help. There's not a helper found for you. And then what does he do? Well, he says, how about a goat? You need help? You What about chicken? You see, God is just begins to parade all these animals in front of man. I don't think he's necessarily playing with them. But I think what God is doing is very graciously bringing man to the same conclusion which God has already reached. He's teaching him. And so God begins to parade these animals before him. And so he may learn what God already knows. That there is none here that is a suitable helper for me. He, I trust has this desire welling up in him as a pig is prayed to buy, and then a cow, and then a chimpanzee. No thank you, no thank you, no thank you. And he looks, and there is not one, not one for him. By the way, I do want you to notice that he is intelligent. Let me just say this as a footnote. 
that he is not sitting in a cave, banging himself with a stick, with, drooling on himself. This man is a brilliant man. He is surveying the animals. He is naming them. He is not some half man, half ape. He is a full mind. He's probably smarter than you and I are in his pre-fallen state. And we have this man who is brilliant. And he begins to name them aardvark, baboon, camel, dog, elephant. And then we have a very self-evident verse here at the end of verse 20 as we read, but for Adam there was not a helper fit for him. He understood it. I began to well up into him, I trust. I want someone to help me. But there is none here. God is preparing him for a wife. A wife, Scripture tells us, is to be a helper to her husband. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 9, man was not created for woman, but the woman was created for man. She was created to help him. To be an assistant, to, to assist him in the work in which God has called him to do. I think this is probably the reason we see one of the major differences, at least in my observation, between men and women is that men tend to be task oriented and women tend to be relationship oriented. Well, I, I think that you see that perfectly here in Genesis chapter two, where man is created, he's given a job to do. Here's a task, but he needs help to do it. And so God creates a woman in order to help him in that relationship to accomplish the task in which God has given him. You see, the man needs help. The woman needs to help. And there God will bring her to him. The wife is to be a helper to her husband. And so let me speak to the husbands for a moment. You need help. That's why you have a wife. Wives, you are to help your husbands. And so wives, yes, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, but do not take that submission so far that you're afraid to actually help your husband lead and guide his family. And if your husband begins to take the family off in a wrong course financially or morally or the family's not reading the Bible together or seldom prays together, you are there to provide help for him. Do not follow him in that direction, but provide the help for which God has given you the insight and the wisdom which he has placed you in that home. You are his helper in these things. And by the way, let me speak to the girls here this morning that are not married. You want to find a man in which you can help. You do not want to find a man in which you must fix. A wife is not a fixer. She's a helper. Do you, you know who's the fixer? Mom's the fixer. Mom fixes the child and sends him off and the wife comes to help. And so often I've seen, especially in my years of youth ministry, that girl falls in love with a boy who has all sorts of trouble and problems and says, I'll fix him. I'll love him and I'll fix him and we'll just, you know, I'll bring him through this. And all you are is setting yourself up for years of hardship and difficulty. You ought not to marry a man who needs to be fixed. Yes, marry a man who needs your help, but not a man who must be fixed. Because men are to go into a family leading their family. And I believe they act like fools when they ignore the help that their wife gives them. God has given them wisdom and insight. When they ignore that, they begin to act like a single man. And it ought not to take place. And so let me ask you, how many of you men are married to a helpful woman? That is not the answer I was looking for. <laughs> I'm married to a helpful woman as she enters the auditorium. I will answer my question. My wife and I have been wed for 16 years. She is my closest confidant. She hears my sermons before you do many times as I trust her insight and her intuition and her desire to be a helper to me. Are you men married to a helpful wife? I ask again. Yes. Amen. Wives are to be helpers to their husbands. And so we see the need for marriage. 
But then God, once he establishes the need for marriage, begins to unfold the nature of marriage. What is it? I've identified five realities, five truths, I believe, from God's word about the relationship of this marriage. You see, first of all, that marriage is to be a relationship of attraction. Note verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And so the wife, his wife, comes from his side. God forms her from a rib. The feminists in our day would say the women are to be out front. The chauvinists in our day would say the men are to be out front. God says they are to be side by side. I appreciate the famous quote that Matthew Henry gave long ago. She, she is not made out of his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. She comes from his side. This, I think, is why my wife likes to snuggle. Does your wife like to snuggle? If I was sitting right next to her, she, if we didn't have four kids between us, she would be right up next to me. Well, that's where she comes from. She's just coming home. And she loves to feel my embrace. And I trust that wives love that affection and compassion because God brought this great unity and separated them together that they may be brought back in marriage. And he's the one who actually brings her to him. You notice that in verse 22. After he has formed her, he brought her to the man. He takes her like a father walking his daughter down the aisle to be wed. You just think about the provision that God is giving. That, that, that he, is, he makes his gift that is a wife. And he makes her and he brings her to the man. He doesn't have to go looking for her. He doesn't go hunting. God wants to bless and God wants to give as he does this beautiful picture as God brings her to this man. This is a, this is a big day for her, isn't it? I mean, she got made, which is a big deal. She met God, another big deal. And she's getting married. And so that's, that's a lot to take in, I think, for most women. And what's she wearing, by the way? A white dress? I'm afraid not. She's naked. And so there's a lot going on right here as she walks down this aisle to meet her husband. I appreciate what one commentator says. Imagine the scene as the last of the beast plod off with its new name. The man turns away with a trace of perplexity and sorrow in his eyes. And God says... Son, I want you to lie down. Now close your eyes and sleep. The man falls into a deep slumber. The creator goes to work, opening the man's side, removing a rib, closing the wound, and building the woman. And there she stands, perfectly gorgeous and uniquely suited to the man's needs. The Lord says to her, Daughter, I want you to go and stand over there. I'll come for you in a moment. She obeys. Then God touches the man and says, wake up now, son. I have one last creature for you to name. I'd like to know what you think of this one. And so what does he think? Well, we see his response here in verse 23. The first human words ever recorded. This is a big deal, right? He is meeting his wife for the first time, and here she comes, arm in arm with God down the aisle to be wed, and he has to come up with a good response, don't you think? A good reaction to her. And you know what he says here in verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You notice that he sings to her. 
Is that not interesting? I have heard this is why women love the musicians. It's built right into them. And here's man who is singing this song. The first human words ever spoken were a song. Someone pointed out it, it was like a musical. Well, it sounds more like a nightmare than a paradise to me. If that's all there is, is this musical that's being sung. But here's this man singing. And clearly, you notice he's happy with her. You see what he says? This at last, he declares. Finally, he says, I have one who is fit for me. She is bone of my bones. He is clearly excited and delighted. In fact, he goes on to name her, showing his authority, showing his headship in the family. Right? You remember in Genesis 1, it was God who's doing all the naming. God said, I'll call the light day and I'll call the darkness nine. He says, I'll call the expanse sky. And God, throughout Genesis 1, names everything. And then man comes, he's creating God's image. And God says, okay, now you begin to name. You begin to, to exercise that image-bearing role and you begin to name the animals. And here he comes and, and he names the, the woman. He names his wife. In fact, you notice what he names her. He's got to call her something. She shall be called woman. Right? I think you ought to do better than, than woman, to be perfectly honest. I'm not sure you want to call your wife woman. You could try. You tell me how it goes. Um, but that seems, I mean, it's, it's a, it may be a musical, but it seems kind of lame to me that she shall be called woman, but he'll re- rename her in chapter 3, as we shall see when we get there. And here he begins to find his great delight. The answer to his loneliness is the wife in which he delights in. This is the answer to his need. And listen, let's be perfectly clear. Perhaps we don't need to say this. But the answer to man's needs is not homosexuality. And it's not bisexuality. It's not polygamy. It's not adultery. It's not fornication. And it's not cohabitation. It is marriage. One man and one woman. And it seems like our culture is very confused today, doesn't it? Our Supreme Court is very confused. Because they don't read the Bible. That's all they have to do is open. They don't even have to read very far, just a couple chapters, and they will find what God has given us. It's amazing to me why people so intelligent can be so dumb sometimes. The Scripture clearly lays it out for us. And yet they have abandoned that which God has given to us. The Bible is clear. Marriage comes from God And it is a relationship of attraction. But you also see the nature of marriage shows us there's a relationship of new priorities. Note verse 24, therefore man shall leave his father and mother. Uh, This is a verse that both Jesus will quote and the apostle Paul would quote. And we see that there's a new family being formed or new priorities. They're leaving their old family in order to start a new family. It is interesting though that he says, therefore man shall leave his father and mother. Of course, Adam has neither, nor does Eve. They don't, they don't have, there are the two people ever to live that don't have a father or mother. It is paradise after all, so there's no in-laws evidently. Um, <laughs> but the point is that he's trying to, to teach Adam, he's trying to teach us, that when you get married, there's a new family forming. Not so much you turn your back upon your family. It's not that you don't return their calls or go over to the house for their meals. But there's a new obligation that precedes every other obligation you have. There's a new commitment and new loyalty and new intimacy. In that sense, he is leaving to take on a, a new family. I, I tell you this morning that nothing should take precedence. No relationship that you have should take precedence over the relationship that you have with your spouse. My children well understand this. They understand that their father loves their mother more than he loves even them. She comes first in my life. 
She is the one whom God has given me that we may be united together. And, 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 and so we see that God is teaching us that there is a new family that's being formed, the new priorities. This is why marriage is to be public, by the way. This is why we even see a, somewhat of a public ceremony here in Genesis 4 as God brings them together out in the open because the marriage not only impacts the couple, but it actually begins to impact their other relationships. And they fundamentally begin to change once a couple comes to be married. This is why sometimes marriage is hard on parents. Right now, I'm number one in my daughter's eyes. I am the man in their life. And I am not looking forward to the day in which there is another man who wants to take that role. This is why fathers give away their daughters. Who is it that gives this woman to be wed to this man? Who is it that is giving up something, someone that another may have? One day, my daughters will come to me and say, Dad, I have a man in my life, and it's not you. And he's my world now. And I am not looking forward to that day. I praise the Lord I have 40 years to get ready for it. (laughs) And that man will have this man to go through. And standing behind me, at least three brothers. This is hard. But this is God's will, isn't it? Is that there is a new family, new priorities. In my experience as a pastor, I have discovered that there is much heartache in marriages when there is a failure to understand this truth. I have understand that spouses begin to resent each other when the, their, their husband or their wife seems to value their parents' opinion over their very own. See, God teaches us, no, no, there's a break and a new family that's established here. There's a new priority. But you also see, thirdly, the nature of marriage includes a relationship of devotion. Again, in verse 24, as we read on, the Bible tells us, and he will hold fast to his wife. He will embrace her. He will cling to her. He will cleave to her. There is a a devotion to her. In fact, this word to hold fast is used in the book of Kings to describe how leprosy clings to the body. It's used in the book of Job to describe how bones cling to the skin. It's used in Ezekiel to describe how scales cling to the fish. And it's in Genesis to describe how a husband should cling to his wife. We Americans are very good at clinging, but often not good at clinging to our spouses. We tend to cling to career and leisure and television and education and friends and sports teams. But often we struggle to cling to the one whom we're supposed to, our wives, our husbands. And when we fail to do that, we break a bond which God intends not to be broken. This is why when marriages fall apart, it is so painful and it hurts so much. Dennis Rainey, the the, the very famous marriage conference speaker, speaks of the pain when this bond is broken, this devotion is disregarded. He read an article or heard a story at least in the San Francisco Bay newspaper and there was a classified ad which read, For sale, Mercedes 240 SL, fully loaded, $50 takes it. One man, not believing his eyes, called the number to find out if it was a misprint. The woman who answered the phone said, No, $50, you could have the car. He rushed over and as he handed over $50 and received the title from her, he asked her why is she selling a fully loaded Mercedes for $50. She responded, well, my husband phoned me from Las Vegas. He's with his secretary. And he said he's leaving me. He also told me he went broke. And so he asked me to sell the Mercedes and send him half the money I get for it. <laughs> There's pain when these things dissolve. 
It's hurt when the devotion is disregarded. So may I remind you this morning that nothing should bring you greater delight than your spouse. Nothing should bring you greater delight than your spouse. You should cleave and cling and embrace to nothing like you embrace your spouse. There was a time in which you stood before God's people and God himself and said, I take thee to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others until death do us part. That is a vow that is made for the future. That is a declaration saying, I don't know what the future will hold. It may hold health, it may hold sickness, it may hold wealth, it may hold poverty, it may hold good times, and it may hold bad times. But this is my vow. I will be your husband until death separates us. That is the devotion which God calls for us to embrace. This is his plan. This is his vision for marriage. In fact, Robertson McQuilkin was startled when word got out of his resignation. He heard of husbands and wives renewing their marriage vows when they heard of his story. He heard of pastors telling the story to their congregations. He said, it is a mystery to me why it attracted such attention until he met with an oncologist friend who lives constantly with dying people. And this oncologist told him, in my experience, almost all women stand by their men, but very few men stand by their women. It is not how God intends. God intends marriage to be a relationship of devotion. You also know, fourthly, that marriage is to be a relationship of intimacy. At the end of verse 24, we read, and they shall become one flesh. Most commentators, I believe, rightly understand this to be a sexual union. It's referring to sex here. This is the pattern, by the way, in which God gives us. You notice the pattern in Genesis 2.24? You, you grow up, you leave mom and dad, you get married, then you get sexual intimacy with your spouse. In our culture, we have totally reversed it. We have totally disregarded God's plan. And now uh, adolescents want to have sexual intimacy without any of the responsibility that marriage brings. Any of the commitment. They, they just simply, if you will, they just want the naked woman. When God says you may have her in the context of marriage, God is in favor of sexual intimacy. He created it. He has given it to us as a gift, but he has put boundaries on it for our good that it may take place within the marital relationship. I appreciate what C.S. Lewis has said when commentating on this verse. He said the inventor of the human machine was telling us that its two halves, the male and the female, were made to be combined together in pairs. Not simply on the sexual level, but totally combined. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to live in isolation of one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and to make up the total union. The Christian attitude, he writes, does not mean that there's anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than about the pleasure of eating. It means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and then spitting them out again. I think it's a beautiful picture of what God's wonderful plan is. That this is to take place within the context of a devoted marriage. 
Of course, there's more than just a sexual union here. There's an emotional intimacy, a spiritual intimacy, a profound intimacy that you and your spouse ought to have lives fused together. You ought to be one flesh in everything, in your dreams, in your thoughts, in your prayers. This is the direction in which God wants us to head. I wonder, are you developing this union, this, this intimacy with your spouse? Are you working toward, to create greater depths of, of this intimacy? This is what God wants for us. This is God's plan for us. Well, you notice lastly, the nature of marriage here is also a relationship of security. We see this in a very interesting verse, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's interesting. It's kind of strange. It's kind of thrown there at the end. Many question, what, what, what's the point of this verse? I, I think it, the, the answer is, why is it that they're not ashamed? There they stand before each other without any clothing on and they feel no shame. Some have suggested they feel no shame because they're perfect. You know, after all, they're created very good. And, and so there they are. They're, they're flawless, if you will. They're beautiful. And so perhaps the freedom from shame has to do with they have nothing to be shamed about. I'm not convinced that's the answer, though. Because you may be perfect, but I believe your spouse can still shame you. I believe they still have the power to demean you, to make you feel poor about yourself. I don't think this is a declaration here in verse 25 that they have perfect bodies. I think it's a declaration that they have a perfect marriage that they trust their spouse will not shame them, that will not demean them, that they are safe with each other, that God designs marriage to be totally vulnerable and totally comfortable, totally safe and secure. The reason I believe this to be the case is if you read down in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7, after they have plunged themselves into sin, you notice the first response they have in verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So suddenly, they're insecure around each other. Well, did they become instantly ugly? Well, I don't think so. There's nothing to imply that to me. I don't think their beauty was assaulted. I think their union was. I think they understood that the person who is now looking upon my nakedness is no longer trustworthy. Therefore, I'm afraid to be vulnerable. If she will turn her back upon her creator, certainly she will turn her back upon me. She is no longer safe. And so what do they do? They run and hide and cover their nakedness because it's now dangerous as the marriage becomes rocked by sin. This is something that we must strive to overcome in marriage. The more we bring sin into marriage, the more we assault this security which God intends for marriage to have. The more your spouse uh, believes that she cannot or he cannot be vulnerable around you because it may come back and fight against her. See, we, we're, we're to have no shame in marriage not because we're perfect but because we're loved well. And love does what? It covers a multitude of sin, a multitude of flaws. I wonder if this is one of the reasons why the Bible tells us in Ephesians 5 that marriage is actually a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Because don't you feel safe in your relationship with Jesus? Don't you feel secure with Christ? Is it because you're perfect? No. It's because you are well loved by him. You feel secure in Christ because his love has covered all of your sins and you have no fear of him. You are secure there. 
This is how God intends marriage to be. This is the, the, the place in which we should strive for. Unfortunately, as we've already established, marriage has been changed by sin. It's been attacked. And we, all of our marriages feel the effects of sin. Even the best marriage here knows how sin can harm this marriage. Some here, I believe, perhaps have marriages that are not good at all. And they read Genesis chapter 2 and they say, that doesn't look like my marriage. Intimacy, devotion, priority, security, attraction. My hope here is not to bring you down, but to give you hope. You know, Christ is a redeemer, as Ray has shown us this morning. And he takes things that are broken and wrong and rebellious, and he can redeem them. He can redeem any marriage. He can bring it out of sin and strife and struggle into something glorious and beautiful and wonderful. It starts with repentance. It starts with owning up for what you contribute to the troubles in your marriage, not blaming your spouse for your behavior. It begins by saying, I'm sorry. I am not loving you like I should. It begins by understanding where we are in Christ. That all we receive from Christ when we sin against him is grace. It begins with a disposition of grace towards one's spouse. When they come against you, when they do something that's harmful to you, your, your default position is not justice. It is grace to give them. It is mercy. This is how Christ would have us to live. Of course, marriage is not only troubled in particular marriage, but it's trouble in our society as we take this consumer mentality into marriage. What am I going to get out of it? As we begin to understand marriage more and more these days as a social contract, not a divine institution, just a matter of laws in which one court can change at its will. As we see in our society as attraction, which God has given us, is turned into lust or sex has become a casual physical act and divorce is rampant. And it's being attacked everywhere. It's being assaulted by, by, by everyone and everything almost. But the amazing thing to me is that it continues. Despite all the trouble that marriage is, in, is having, it continues. In fact, you know what I find fascinating about this homosexuality marriage issue? It's amazing to me that they want to be married. Have you thought about that? Why do they even care? Why do they need this marriage? Well, I think it's built into them. I think as God has put it into their heart. And they long for this marriage. And in sin, we're going to pervert it and we're going to distort it. And I trust it is only going to get worse, friends. Perhaps God will do some work in our land. But ultimately, I think it's just going to keep going this direction. But let me tell you the opportunity that gives for you. And when we see how marriage is being redefined in our midst, and I know it brings sorrow upon us, but my hope is that your primary reaction is not, what are these people doing to my country? But my hope is that your primary reaction is, I now have an opportunity as a follower of God to have a louder testimony to what God plans for us. You see, what I'm saying is, as the world becomes darker and darker, you and I have greater opportunities to be brighter and brighter and louder and louder. And as people invite misery into their life by perverting the institutions in which God has given them, God's people have a tremendous opportunity to show the world how to live God's way, how to fulfill God's purpose in our marriage, in our homes, in our churches, in our lives, so that when they become sick of their sin, as it brings misery and ruin upon them, they will seek a cure. They will seek the truth. We have an opportunity, I think, that's growing.
I don't rejoice in the direction our country is going. It saddens me greatly, but I do see the hope in it that now as the world plunges farther and farther away from God's word, that you and I, as God's people, may have a louder testimony to truth as long as we don't go with them, as long as we hold firm on what God says. I think this is why the McQuilkins have such a powerful testimony. In fact, as Muriel grew older, she deteriorated. Her husband continued to stand by her. She eventually stopped speaking, and she would just mutter non-words. Robertson wondered if he would ever hear her voice again. And so on the eve of Valentine's Day in 1995, he said, I bathed Muriel, kissed her goodnight, and whispered a prayer over her. Dear Jesus, you love sweet Muriel more than I, so please keep my beloved through the night. May she hear the angel choirs. The next morning he writes, I was pedaling on my exercise bike at the foot of her bed, and while Muriel slowly emerged from sleep, I dipped into the memories of some happy lovers uh, long gone. Finally, she popped awake, and as she often did, she smiled at me. And for the first time in months, she spoke, calling out in a voice as a crystal chime, Love, love, love. That's a picture of what God designs marriage to be. It's a picture of this first marriage that he gives us in Genesis chapter 2. I even think it's a picture of the last marriage that we see in Revelation chapter 19. Do you know that the Bible begins with a marriage? And the Bible ends with a marriage? And that we are headed to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That one day Christ is returning to this earth. That one day the heavens will be open and the trumpet will sound. That every ear might hear. And that the Son of Man will come on the clouds with great glory shining like the brilliant sun. And at his heels will be the army of the angelic hosts. And he has told us that he will send out his angels to the four winds to gather his elect and to raise up the dead who are in Christ. And on that day, you and I will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. That we will be fit for glory forever. That we may be with Christ forevermore. The Bible tells us on that day we'll be wearing white. Brilliant, not because you and I are brilliant, but because Christ is. And he has washed away all of our defilement and sin, our shame and dirt. He has made us clean through his shed blood. And it's on that wedding day that he will present to us a gift, just as he did to our father Adam. He shall present to us a new world, a new creation, never to be marred by sin again. That day is coming, the Bible tells us. Don't you love weddings? Don't you love the new love and the joy and the celebration and the the future? Well, it's built into us. We come from a wedding. We have engaged in our own. And one day we shall end up at the wedding of our beloved Christ. And we shall be with him forevermore. If you love Jesus. It's only those who love Jesus that are invited to that wedding. And so as we end this morning, I ask you, do you love him? Do you love Jesus? I'm not asking, do you believe in him? I I trust you probably, if you're here this morning, have some faith in him. I want to know if you love him. Like he makes your heart beat fast. And you think of him, there's great delight in your soul. 
Do you want to be here this morning? Because you love him. The Bible tells us how we know if we love Jesus. He told us a number of times. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. So the obedience is the proof of our love. Perhaps there are some here this morning that, that if you're honest with yourself, you say, you know, I, I don't love Jesus. You know, I believe certain facts about him, but he doesn't have my heart. The wonderful and glorious thing is I could tell you on the authority of God's word, if you would simply bow your knee to King Jesus and that you would give him your heart today, he shall wash you clean of all your sin. And he shall invite you into his family. He shall be your savior. You shall have forgiveness of sins forevermore living eternally with your God and maker in unimaginable delight and joy. You can do that today. I tell you, God has given me this authority to tell you this morning, you can be saved today forever if you would give your life to Christ. If you would do what Ray Krabach has done. Say, Christ, I'm turning away from my sin and I'm living for you today and forevermore. Oh, I beg you to do that today. Your life will be changed forever. What a glorious invitation that he has given us. What a glory invitation that you and I, Christians, have responded to. And so I ask you one more time, and I would love an answer. Do you love Jesus? We do love you, Jesus. We thank you for your great work for us. We thank you that you are coming again, that you will... Invite us who found our, our heart's affection upon you into that wedding supper with the Lamb that we shall be with you forevermore. We thank you for your great work for us. And we thank you for our marriages. I pray for those of us who are married today that you would help us to see this great, beautiful picture, robust and strong and intimate and deep marriage that we would long for. I pray for those who come this morning with hurting marriages. I pray, Father, that you would give them hope. I pray that you would begin to work in their life, that they would begin to consider what they can do to, to pursue this vision. Not what their spouse can do, but what they can begin to do. Will you surround them with, with wise counsel and godly Christians that they may help them and assist them? I pray for my friend here this morning that perhaps does not love you, and I ask that you would let him or her know of that truth, that they may respond to you. Will you give them faith? Will you plant love in their hearts, take out their heart of stone, and give them a heart of faith that they may trust you and love for you and long for you? Will you please do this work? I pray for my friends here, my brothers and sisters that have history and that have made mistakes and committed sin in their marriages and past. I thank you, Father, for grace. I pray as they hear a message like this, they would not hear law, they would not hear condemnation and judgment, but that they would rejoice in the grace of God who has covered them through the shed blood of Jesus Christ for all the sins that they have committed in their marriage. I thank you for the grace that covers my sin committed against my beloved. I thank you for that which is given to my brothers and sisters. May we rejoice in that grace. And may we go today in our homes and may our disposition towards our spouse be that of grace. And when they sin against us, will we not long for justice, but that we be anxious to extend forgiveness as you have extended upon us. Help us. Help Hamilton Baptist Church to be a place of strong, robust, deep, God-honoring marriages. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.